You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Scripture reading this afternoon is taken, first of all, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 78, and the verses 32 to 39 from Psalm 78, and thereafter we move on to Ephesians chapter 6, the verses 10 to 18. First of all, then, we read from Psalm 78, where the psalmist Asaph is recounting the history of God's people and some of his dealings with them. We read from verse 32 to 39, where it says, In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. But then they would flatter Him with their mouths, lying to Him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. Yet He was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time He restrained His anger and did not stir up His full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. Then we turn to Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10 and ending at verse 18. Finally, the Apostle Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the Church summarizes and confesses this, Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the 127th question and answer. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Wilt thou, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, did you get into 
trouble last week. You children, did you do something or say something that made your father or mother or teacher angry? Perhaps it was that word on the tip of your tongue that you just could not suppress. Perhaps it was the shove of that fellow student into the mud that you just couldn't resist. Or was it that pencil that you just had to throw when your teacher wasn't looking? Our life is full of so many temptations that are hard to resist, right? Yes, and that goes not just for the youngsters among us, it applies just as much to the older folk. Almost all of you husbands here know that your wives do not respond kindly to neglect. And yet, that's precisely what often happens. You turn them into work widows. And at the same time, almost all of you wives here know that the fastest way to light your husband's fuse is to nag and natter. And yet you do it anyway. Oh, and what about you teenagers who know exactly what buttons to push and so cause parental eruptions? They still happen in your homes, don't they? So what does it all prove? Well, it proves that life is full of temptations. It proves that every day there is something that comes along, entices us, and gets us into trouble. And indeed, beloved, if bread and forgiveness are the first and second things when it comes to our needs, then a very good case can be made for the fact that temptation is the third thing. So easily and so often we succumb to the things that we should resist. And the outcome? Trouble, trouble, and more trouble. Parents who explode, teachers who hand out detentions left and right, husbands in dog houses, wives in a huff. We can relate to it all. Yes, and all of that damage is horizontal stuff. It's the kind of grief that we give to one another. But now what about our relationship to God? What damage does temptation not do there? What deep holes do we not dig for ourselves? What vertical pain do we not cause? I think, beloved, in light of all of this, it's good that the Lord Jesus included one more petition in his perfect prayer. Wisely and correctly, he saw one more human need that needed to be addressed to the Heavenly Father. And so I'd like to preach to you on our third great need and the last petition. And we're going to look briefly at our human condition or our our natural condition, our sworn enemies and our spiritual resources. Well, beloved, temptation comes along in one form or another, and what happens, what is it that happens all too often in this life? We give in, we surrender to it, and we collapse. And why is that? Why are we prone to doing all of that? Well, the answer that's given in the opening words of 
Answer 127 of the Catechism is instructive. In ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. And no sooner do we read those words and that particular answer and we are inclined to say, now just a minute here. Such an answer is far too negative and pessimistic. It's your typical Calvinistic put down. I may be weak, but who says that I can't stand by myself? And that business about not even being able to stand for a moment, that only adds injury to insult or insult to injury. In short, our wounded pride is quick to bite back. Yes, and our theology is not far behind. For there are Christians who read what is said here and who object that such an assessment fails to take into account that we are a new creation. In other words, the catechism is dabbling in the language of the old man and the old nature, and it's refusing to recognize the transforming power of grace and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, beloved, is that true? Is the catechism guilty here of failing to take into account the work of God in the hearts of believers? Well, personally, I'm not convinced of that. And indeed, I would say to you this afternoon, there are two things to keep in mind here. And the first has to do with a distinction, a very important distinction that we always need to keep in mind when we read Scripture. And that's the distinction between the already and the not yet. Do you know how that works? Do you know how that, what that means? But it has to do with the fact that as believers, salvation today is always to be understood at least in two tenses. The past and the future, if not the present. And what that means is that as believers in Christ, we have been saved, we, we are sanctified, we are seated with Christ. At the right hand of God, we are glorified. You know, the Apostle Paul, he loves to use aorist Greek tenses, and, and they describe a completed action in the past. And that's why Paul says, when Christ died, I died. And when Christ arose, I arose. And when Christ ascended, I ascended. There's a sense in which the Apostle Paul says we have it all already. But then wait. For there is at the same time a sense in which it is not yet. In principle, yes, I have died to sin. But I have not died totally. In principle, I have been raised, but not yet completely. In principle, I have ascended, but not yet fully. And as a result, beloved, there is this ongoing tension in the Christian life, if you will. We are the true heirs. The true heirs who still need to enter into their full inheritance. We are actual sons and daughters who are still waiting for the complete family experience. We are real disciples, but still waiting to be perfected. 
Yes, and what this means is that the language of the catechism is not unduly pessimistic, but rather it's choosing to put its stress on the not yet aspect. It's saying that while you are a true child of God, you're still weak. You're still vulnerable. Why, in that connection, I would remind you of what we read last time in Lord's Day 51, where you see somewhat the same kind of approach of the catechism. Do you recall those words, that is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions? You hear that kind of language and you want to stand up and you want to say, now just a moment there. I'm no longer a wretched sinner, I'm a redeemed sinner. And you know what? If you were to do that, if you were to stand up and say that, you'd be right. For the truth of the matter is we are both. We are redeemed sinners and we are wretched sinners. The former stresses the already. The latter stresses the not yet. But then, beloved, if the catechism here explains this sixth petition from out of the perspective of what we have not yet achieved, you can note it also does something else. It describes what we are purely and solely in and of ourselves, what we are stripped of all outside help. Note carefully the language and the qualification. In ourselves, it says, we are so weak. What are we in ourselves? We're easy targets. We're sitting ducks. We're toothless tigers. And how we hate to admit that. But nevertheless, it's true, painfully, shamefully, true. Why it's been true in a sense ever since the beginning of time. Consider Adam. Adam made in the image and likeness of God and when he is confronted by the devil, you it, actually it should be a case of, of no contest. We fully expect Adam to thump him, but good. But does he? No, we read in Scripture that Adam turns and he listens and he vacillates and he gets sucked in and he falls. Yes, and what Adam did, mankind has been doing ever since. In ourselves there is just no way that we can stand. As long as it's a case of us being in ourselves, the outcome will never be in doubt. It will always spell failure. The still beloved, our innate weakness is not the only problem that we face. There is another, and it's called DWF. No, it's not WWF, the World Wrestling Federation. And neither is a WBF, the World Boxing Federation. No, it's a case of DWF. And then the D stands for 
devil. The devil. You know what that means? That means that one of the enemies that we face is inherently spiritual. You can't see him. You can't monitor him. He's invisible. He's cunning. At the same time, he's also vicious. And let's not forget that he's been around a long, long time. And that he's working on a grudge that's centuries old. And that his whole aim in life is to trip us up and to do us in. And the worst possible thing you can do with regard to this enemy is to underestimate him. And you know what? We do it all the time. Because we can't see him, we assume he's not there. And the only time it seems that we really take him serious is when the public press gets on his case and mentions him because of some book or some movie. And that's regrettable. For he's there. He's part and parcel of this fallen creation. If there's a weakness in your life, He knows about it, and he's trying his best to exploit it. He's always looking for openings, for opportunities to trip you up. He's out to make you fall into sin. He he wants to see you deny your confession. He loves it when you insult or compromise your loyalty to your Savior. That's the whole purpose of his existence. And so, beloved, we need to understand that our first enemy is very much spiritual. Our second enemy is very concrete and material. The W in DWF stands for world, the world. And we need to understand that term in the right way. But the word world is used in various different ways in the scriptures. Sometimes it describes an objective or it's an objective way of speaking about where we live and work. And other times it's simply a geographical description. Or it may be a description of humanity as a whole, as in that expression, all the world went to be enrolled. And so there are, on the one hand, all of those innocent uses of the word world. But nevertheless, there is a usage that's entirely negative. Sometimes the word world refers to that arrogant, unbelieving human system that stands opposed, utterly opposed to God. And if you look at the writings, for example, of the Apostle John, you so often find that particular emphasis. If the world hates you, or as you find in the Gospel of John chapter 15, you do not belong to the world. Or what about his letters, do not love the world or anything in the world. And sure, this world represents the enemy. Just like the devil, it's out to get us. It would love to see us swallow its 
philosophies, take part in its activities, adopt its mindsets, take over its attitudes, swallow its ideologies. And if you want to see the world in action, you can see it every day. Just turn on your television. Just watch one of innumerable sitcoms, for example, like Friends or others. And what you will get is your daily dose of crude jokes and silly language and sexual innuendos and immoral depictions and so forth. It's all very concrete, very blatant. And in your face. And so, beloved, there are spiritual enemies, there are material enemies. And there's also, sad to say, finally, an internal enemy. The F in D-W-F stands for flesh, the flesh. Our flesh. In short, there's an enemy within the gate within our very own ranks, within our very own selves and lives. How often does Scripture not say that there is a spiritual battle raging in our own lives? The Apostle Paul, for example, he he refers to it in Galatians chapter 5. It has to do with the flesh and the spirit. It pits the lusts of the flesh against the fruits of the Spirit. And now, of course, when we hear this, we can go into denial mode. Or we can go into pious overdrive and pretend that this doesn't apply to us. But who are we kidding? Again, beloved, we may be God's children already and be immensely thankful for that. But who of us can honestly say that in our lives lust has been eradicated, hatred has been banished, jealousy is passé, ambition is dead, envy has been mastered, and idolatry is history. The grim reality is that we all still have our struggles and our weaknesses. Our own flesh still seeks to betray us. All in all, when we consider DWF, it's not a pretty picture that we see. The fact that there are those sworn enemies, as the catechism calls them, should bother us. It should also humble us and lure us. And it should also do something else. It should drive us to the recognition that this sixth and this last petition is still very relevant and necessary today. Here's a need, a pressing need. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you and I even today, here is a particular need in our lives that calls for prayer. In the face of our innate weakness and considering our sworn enemies, considering all the forces arrayed against us, 
We need help. And lots of it. To put it bluntly and in military terms, we need to call in the reinforcements. Yes, and thankfully, thankfully we can do that. For starters, the Lord Jesus reminds us that we need to turn to our Heavenly Father and ask Him to lead us not into temptation. Lead us, Lord, not into temptation. Of course, that raises the interesting question, does God tempt? Does He lead us into temptation? No, for the Apostle James says clearly, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, our God doesn't tempt us. He doesn't lead us into sin or into compromising situations. We do that ourselves, as, as James goes on to say, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And of course, after we hear that, we may say, well, that may all be true, but why then does the Lord Jesus use that word temptation? Well, beloved, the answer lies in the fact that the original word that the Lord Jesus uses here has a wide variety of meanings. And so one of those varieties of meanings has to do with trials and testing. As we live out our faith every day, our Heavenly Father does not exempt us from the difficult situations and the hard circumstances, the kind that stretch our faith, that test our wills, or that try our souls. Think, for example, of Job. And indeed, you can even make a very good case for the position that, that tests and trials are a necessary and essential part of our faith development. The kind of things that force us to become more focused, that lead us to greater discernment, that filter out all of the nonsense of life, that help us to see more clearly. Exercise and training are necessary components to form a winning team, be it hockey, soccer, or what have you. And they're not always easy things. But yet, beloved, they produce benefits in terms of stamina and strength and ultimately, hopefully, winning. Well, the same applies to our faith life. It needs to face pressures, challenges, obstacles, hardships. Otherwise, it will not grow. And that's why James also speaks so positively about trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Rejoice when you're tested, in other words, in many different ways. 
We need trials. We need to see the positive and the constructive in them. Faith needs trials. But it doesn't need trials to such an extent that they make us fail and fall. Yes, and that's where this last petition comes into the picture again. We know that trials must come, that they need to come, but at the same time we are to pray that they will not do us in. Quite simply, we are to ask God to watch over us when we are tried and to give us a positive outcome. Deliver us from the evil one. You see, there is a sense in which we need trials and we want triumphs. Yes, and God can enable us to triumph. If there is a sobering aspect or element in this petition because it reminds us of our vulnerability, there is also an uplifting element because it directs us firmly to our God and to His almighty power. And what a power He has at His disposal. His power is all-encompassing. It creates the world and the universe. His power is supreme and rules over all. His power is available. We have access to it through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior. And so, beloved, if we want to live a triumphant, victorious life, we must turn to the Father. Specifically, we must turn to Him and ask Him to give us the best weapon He has in His arsenal. And do you know what that is? Well, it's not a what. It's a who. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. It's that other counselor whom the Lord Jesus Christ promised to send as the result of his physical absence from the earth. It's the spirit of power and wisdom and truth and fellowship and glory and holiness. He's available to us every day. Jesus said, I will send him to you. And he has. And he does. As we are caught up in this great spiritual warfare, we have the greatest spirit of all to help us. Why, we even have him to arm us. Isn't that what we read together in Ephesians chapter 6? That armor of God, that spiritual armor for a spiritual war. The belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. We have it all. We're decked out as it were from tip to toe. 
And did we have all that we need to try us? And the Lord Jesus is saying to us also this afternoon, it's yours for the asking. It's yours for the praying. And so, beloved, as we go through this life, let's take into account not only our innate vulnerability and our sworn enemies, but above all, let us pray constantly to God the Father, Through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in humble reliance upon Him, we can and we shall surely triumph. Some of Paul's letters have double doxologies in them, and that also goes for 1 Thessalonians It ends with a devout longing and desire. It goes like this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, when you think of it, is that ever something to long for and to hope for? Imagine being blameless at His coming. Can there be anything more glorious than to to come through life's many trials and temptations, unscathed, forgiven, blameless? Is that possible? Is that even remotely possible? Yes, it is. But no, the Apostle Paul adds, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, the one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. And he will do it. What comforting words. God himself will do it. Through his Son, he will do it. By the power of his Spirit, he will do it. And we need to hang on to those words, beloved. Hang on to them as we face trials and struggles and burdens and cares. For then we shall surely Surely triumphs. One day, the not yet will disappear and the already will be confirmed in power and perfection, in victory and vindication forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.